I come to think of a, something that happens for us very often when we are in a sales meeting with, with a new bank that we don't know so well and we show them our systems and everything is happy and, and we sign an NDA, then, then they tell us what they have today. Hey everybody and welcome to the interview. I'm your host Daniel Cronin. With us today we've got Eric Benneholt from Nactregal. Eric is the CEO and co-founder of Nactagal. He's a proven track record in building cutting-edge banking systems and his 20 years in the industry with different banks give him a unique understanding of the lending landscape. Founded in 2015, Nactagal enables banks to scale boost efficiency and enter new markets, making lending more straightforward and accessible to consumers and more intuitive for bankers. Its products include a business lending platform, a mortgage lending platform, a consumer lending platform and deposits. Uh, Eric, thank you for being here. Great to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Super. Eric, I just want uh, to give the audience a little bit of flavor for who we have on today. It would be great if you could tell us a little bit about your early career and how you arrived at solving the problem you are today. Yeah, I sort of stumbled into it. I find that to often be the case. You know, no one dreamt about being in finance when they were kids. We just ended up here, all of us. So, and in, and in my case, I mean, I, I was this tech geek when I was a kid. I was sitting in my, my parents' basement and, and coding when other people were out playing and, and having fun. But, but I thought that was really fun. And I was, you know, I was dabbling in building neural networks when I was a teenager. Uh, back then, AI was not what it is today. Back then, it was purely an academic field. And then I found out that, okay, so I can actually program computers for a living. And this was back in the 90s. It was a very different time. Internet was new. Nothing, nothing of the tools that we know today existed. So we had to build everything from scratch. And my first job was at an online-only mortgage bank. As it happens, the first online-only mortgage bank in the world. So that was completely new. I had to explain to my, my mother uh, that this is actually a good idea. She, she couldn't believe it. Like banks on the internet, what, what, what will they come up with next? And she was a programmer herself, and but she just couldn't see it happening. So that was my first job. So we built a mortgage system for the online age, for the web, for the first time ever. And that has, of course, been sort of the foundation of my career, realizing that we can actually build these kinds of systems. And having been part of the people that did that was a massive... It was, it was a school, you know. We had to build everything for ourselves. Like I said, we didn't have all the libraries and all the... There were no APIs, nothing like that. We had to build everything for ourselves. So we built uh, our own translation engines. We built our own search engines. We had to make stuff up that could convert things into PDFs. Whatever we had to, we had to build it themselves, ourselves. And that was pretty great, I think, in, in hindsight. What, what I usually say about this is that it sort of created this arrogance in me and in the people of my my generation, that we feel that we can we built the internet, we can build anything, and that arrogance is very good to have. I feel that it is possible to build things. It's possible to make new things to sort of kickstart change in a field. But something like a fear of not being able to to pull through is is holding you back. So, so that, that is pretty much my background. So I had my technical skills, they, they're based from there, and, and my, 
sort of outlook on life that, well, I can, I can build anything if I just put my mind to it. That is, I would say, a fair, a fair assessment of who I am today. It sounds like it, an important value for an entrepreneur to have uh, confidence in one's ability to succeed. Pros and cons. Pros and cons, I would like to say. Well, hence why I gave it the context from an entrepreneur's perspective. I mean, in many contexts, that sort of stuff helps. It can be considered a, a valuable asset in, a, in any environment, but an entrepreneur has to believe that they can do something or why the hell would anyone start a company in the first place, right? So I just want to double click a little bit on that. What, what year are we talking when you, when you started trying to put this uh, mortgage tool online? That was in 1999. So quite some time ago. Okay. And w was it just to be able to collect data and it would still get processed by the underwriter typically? Or did you come up with a way of end-to-end -end receiving the application, underwriting, and giving the response to the user? I mean, everything. I mean, we were the bank. So I was working at the bank and we did, we did everything. So, I mean, there were systems that you could buy, but not with online capacity. I mean, they, they were old systems for, for the age before the internet. So we had to build everything from, from the application, customer onboarding, uh, underwriting, and then the, the ledger, of course, handling the, the 40 years that a mortgage lives. Was it just the sale and then they'd have to talk to somebody or was it end-to-end -end no talking to anybody? You could apply and get approved. Yes. I mean, sometimes, oftentimes, you, you ended up talking to someone somewhere along the line, customer service. I'm talking Happy Path. But Happy Path, yeah. Yeah. Happy Path was fully digital already back in 99. Wow. That bank, sadly enough, they, they don't exist anymore. They went bankrupt when the IT bubble sort of burst. But, but we still have, the idea is still very valid, at least very much what made us build the company that we have today. I mean, we essentially have the same technology ideas as we did back then, mind you, a lot better implemented today, but it's still the same ideas. And even today, most banks don't really have that full, like you say, end-to-end -end digital mortgage experience. That is very uncommon. It's usually a very, very nice-looking facade, and then it's very manual in the, in the background. It makes sense. I got to admit, I remember in 20. 13, 2014 was when I got my first mortgage. And uh, so we're talking, you know, a significant number, maybe a decade after uh, after you guys had implemented and gone live. Uh, I remember sat with my payslips and my uh, paper bank statements on my lap, quivering at the thought that the uh, person sat opposite me, who um, in retrospect was far less educated to make the decision on whether I deserved a loan than I was to request a loan. But um, quivering that they might say no. I'm really, really surprised that it was over a decade after what you deployed, it, the UK still hadn't adopted it. And to some extent, it it's only really got there in the last two or three years. So tell us, after that, what happened between then and now? How did you arrive at Nactigal? Yeah, I've been, I've been spending my entire career uh, in the finance industry at various small banks up here in the in the Nordics. It's been, it's been like a golden age for building your own technology. So I was pretty much the guy building their own technology at, at various small banks here. And then, I mean, not surprisingly, exactly the kind of systems that we sell today at, at Nick Gold. So deposits, mortgages, consumer lending, mainly. 
And and the reason, I mean, the, the transition from there into how we started making all is very clear. We had a good run of, of 20 years when we built systems. Banks were thriving. Small banks in Sweden popped up quite regularly, and they grew fast based on the fact that they didn't have any legacy. They could build their own systems. These systems were highly automated. Their processes were highly automated, and they they had these very niche offerings to particular part of the market. So so in that part of their market, they could grow very fast. And this has happened many times. And, and oftentimes, I was the guy building the tech behind it. I mean, not alone, obviously. I think somewhere around 2014, things started to change because we had all these regulation flooding in, catching up, I would say. I would say that, I mean, based on the fact that the internet is now not only available, it's it's sort of the, I mean, if I could talk to my mother now, that would be amazing to tell her. It's not like one way to do banking business. It's the way to do banking business. And But but the fact for me that, that is sort of strong is that internet kind of made automation and scaling to be so fast. So today you can you can create a lot of, good things very fast and a lot of bad things very fast and so regulation is more important than ever just to just to compare i mean casinos are are, are a simple choice i mean you you wouldn't be able to go to a uh, casinos wouldn't be able to be impactful on on society 40 years ago because there weren't a casino in every village and not every person went to the casino but now that everyone has a casino in their cell phone all of a sudden people can lose money at scale, and then regulation becomes important. And this happened, of course, in the banking industry as well. And, and this regulation, I mean, sometimes it shoots off the mark, sometimes it's very clumsy, but, but I, for one, believe that it's very much needed. It's very good we, because without it, it would be much worse. But at the end of the day, this flood of new regulation that has been coming in 2014, and increasingly every year after that, has made it very hard for banks to build their own systems. So the golden age of building your own system is kind of over because it's it's uh, the kind of systems that we built back in 99. We could build them without that much prior knowledge and with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of money that we had. But we couldn't do the same thing today because we have to take all these regulations in into consideration and just to understand all of that regulation before you start building is sort of a massive hurdle for everyone. Sure. Uh, and c- can you give us a couple of examples for those of us who are struggling with the abstract? Uh, uh, can you give it a, a, a tangible example of something you could do 10 years ago, rightly or wrongly, that you now have to go through red tape to be able to do fr- from building a digital lending system? For example, yeah, but I mean the, the the regulation that everyone knows of, even without being in finance, is of course the GDPR. I mean that's the obvious thing. And before that, we could just you know store data and not think about it. And all of a sudden, we need to be very mindful about privacy. What data do we collect? How do we store it? All sorts of things that instead of just putting up a customer database and trying to get as much data as possible to do the business that we want to do. We need to design our processes and our minds around keeping that data secure and sort of calculated. It's a it's a massive change. Sure, sure. And do you think there's players innovating in the space that um, 
less concerned about those regulations or do you think it's it's blanket no it's the regulation you physically can't get this uh you can't get this to market without complying where i'm not to um go back to the the hype cycle of web3 but everything that fiat could do there seems to be an entrepreneur who says web3 can do it better I've seen some commentators on the whole Web3 space say it effectively it's doing exactly the same things that finance and humans have always done, but it's just tagging on the word blockchain and what was illegal before now becomes gray, neither illegal or legal until it gets regulated. But the best example is look at FTX. Look at Coinbase right now. Coinbase are being charged with um, having unregistered securities after having been IPO'd and reviewed by the SEC. So in one example, if it was a fiat-tied security, all of these regulations would apply. But just because it's a Web3 security, actually, no, that wasn't a, uh, that doesn't quite fall into the SEC's regulatory framework. And therefore, it can't be in non-compliance with the framework because it's not covered. Do you think the same might apply for lending? If, if someone was saying, hey, I'm not lending pounds, I'm lending Bitcoin. I can do what I want. And but to be sure, we've seen there's always been the spectrum from from people and companies really trying to follow the the letter of the law to do its very like fullest. And on the other end of the spectrum, people that rather ask for forgiveness than for permission. I wouldn't say that one or the other has been more or less successful. I've seen examples of both. Uh, I think that you can succeed any, either way. One thing that we have seen is that if you if you don't ask for permission and you grow a lot accordingly, you, you sooner or later you will be under scrutiny. I mean, look at Coinbase or look at Klarna here in Sweden. I mean, sooner or later you become so big that you will be looked upon by, by the governing authorities. So... And then would it have been better to to look more at the regulation and, and build that sort of culture into the company before that happened? Yes, to be sure. But would that have meant that they would never have reached where they are? Yeah, probably. So I would say for me, that is a very complex, complex question. What we at Nectar strive to do is, of course, to provide systems that are fully compliant so that our clients don't need to worry all that much about it. They still need to have their compliance functions. They still need to be very involved in it. But, but by having much of that compliance built into the systems, it makes it much easier to just do the right thing. It makes sense. I, I guess, to your point, it's a good example of survivorship bias, I think. Um, everyone sees the um, companies that crash and burn after growing very successfully and coming undone by their lack of adherence to the, to the law. Ergo, anyone who hasn't died was a was a good boy and never never broke any of those same rules. Which, to my experience, I'm just going to call BS on that. I've seen some of the most hyper successful companies behind the scenes be have a flagrant disregard for regulations in the pursuit of growing at all costs. And okay, you have some major obvious examples of where this trips companies up at scale. I would argue. Would they have gotten to that scale if they didn't have that attitude? But on the flip side, nobody knows how many people were doing the same things and not to say they covered their tracks, but they got their house in order before the spotlight shone on them. So it's really difficult for entrepreneurs in any space that is VC-backed where 
last 12 months ex- excluding where the grow at all costs VC financing model of winner takes all. It's very difficult to look at an entrepreneur and say, slowly, 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 because these things, these things are not marathons. These things are sprints. And if, if you're the CEO presiding over a steady period of grow, growth and and following every rule and regulation, and the guy next door is growing 10x, that's the guy that gets funding. I agree. And but I, I think that's part of the problem. I think that it should be more of a marathon than a sprint to build a company, to build something, especially if you're in the financing industry. I mean, this this is a, an industry where you know, Conman has always existed and, and the bubbles do come and go. But at the end of the day, it's, it's sort of the blood flow of society. And we all want it to be, to be stable and mature and sort of, I think that we all want the bank that is in it for a marathon as, as, as customers. So I, I think that there is a problem on the, on the, on the financing side and, and how the incentives are lined up. I, I come to think of a, something that happens for us very often when we are in a sales meeting with, with a new bank that we don't know so well and we show them our systems and everything is happy and, and we sign an NDA, then, then they tell us what they have today. And this is not one bank. This is many banks that we have talked to. And, and they sort of start to, to uh, scratch the floor and, and look uncomfortable. And then they tell us, well, Frankly, we are so embarrassed about this, but we have this flashy front end and it looks really good out towards the customers. And then here in the back, yeah, it's Excel and prayers. And I mean, I, for me, that is kind of, it, it relates to the compliance discussion because if you're using Excel and duct tape to, to sort of handle your, your mortgage ledger, uh, you're not going to be able to follow legislation. It's it's not going to be possible to to do proper KYC, uh, know your customer, or proper anti money laundering checks. That is not going to happen. GDPR, I mean, get out of here. So that is to me very interesting. That and and this is not one bank. I, I'm not pointing fingers there. It's it's like it's a systematic problem that everyone is sort of they they have all these legacies and they have all these manual things and. While I said that sort of the, the, the internet and, and the scale of things has sort of brought upon us the need for compliance uh, and automation to, to be sort of relevant in this game, most banks and most financial companies, companies are not there. So the, the legislation must be strong enough to handle the, the, the big predators out there. But, but quite a few banks that we come across are, are small, fairly old school creatures without the skill set to, to build automation. And, and therefore, it's very hard to be, to be compliant. Given the perception that banks, small or big, are still typically much larger than the average small business, and therefore they've probably got access to capital at their disposal too, to innovate faster than, you know, a, a, a one-stop shop, mom and pop shop. Why is it that they innovate so slowly? Is it that they are revenue defensive? We've all been there where we've all heard the horror stories where uh, someone goes in and they flick a switch that 
has dust on it and they just want to see what this switch does, that the lights in the house turn off. I mean, we saw uh, AWS fail just yesterday um, for quite a, a large period of time. Is it the fear of tinkering can result in long-term damage or, or, is, or is there another motivating factor behind this? This, this is something that we have been discussing my entire career, both when I was working in banks and now that I'm not. I think that there are very many answers to this question. Um, my, my favorite answer is definitely culture. I think that a bank's entire culture should be, if it's, if it's a healthy bank, it should be risk aversion. They, they, they should manage risk. They should know risk and they should be able to help other people avoid it and, and, and make a profit out of that. But, but being risk averse is not the typical or it's not the best entrepreneurial trait. So whenever they start to build things, it's, it's always better to minimize risk than to, to optimize the, the potential. And it's the same when banks are buying systems. I mean, we have the saying that you, you never get fired for choosing IBM. And that is very true. So banks don't choose the best technology. They choose the least risk. And this is, this is problematic when they buy technology. It's much more problematic when they build technology. So I, I think for me, and, and that culture is, is very hard to, to get away from. We, we were working together with this bank a couple of years ago, and they, they were going to set up this new bank to compete with themselves and, and to make, because they realized that we have a hard time becoming more agile and, and sort of uh, forward moving as, as a big bank in Sweden. We, we don't have that capacity. Uh, so we're going to set up a new bank and we're going we're gonna to make sure that no one that works at that bank has ever worked in our bank before, just to avoid that culture. I, I think that culture is really the, the bottom of the problem. However, I, I, I said that I had many answers to this. I, I think that one of the other things that is that banks have this huge responsibility. They're, they're almost the bearers of society in the sense that, that they have to be able to handle everything. If, if you're a fintech startup, you can, you can offer loans to a small, happy path portion of the, of the population, just people that happen to live in a certain kind of circumstances, and, and that's everything you cater to. When you are one of the, the T1 or T2 banks, you have, to, you have to cater to everyone. So there are old people, there are weird sorts of incorporations, there are special rules around farmers. Maybe you have this school class that want to deposit their money and they don't have a certain person that can withdraw them. You have to handle all of those edge cases. And the bank, the, 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 the weird thing about the bank is that through having lived for, for centuries, they know how to handle all of those edge cases. They have people with, with massive knowledge around everything from what is it like to, I don't know, lease parts of a hospital uh, to how does an old person best make sure that they get the retirement fund in, in, in order. Banks need to do everything, and, and they are, they're not happy path. They're built up on edge cases. And oftentimes when they bring in some, some flashy consultants to, to rebuild the bank into something more modern, they, they start with a happy path and they build something super modern and they try to implement it. And then all of the edge cases strike. We've seen this so many times. And so how does your business solve it? 
you're you're new you've not been around hundreds of years um what value do you bring to these banks who have a huge understanding of both their place in society a a, a probably a deeper understanding of the long tail of edge cases to tell me about uh, how how your business ended up solving these problems for banks uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we don't, uh, I would say is the answer. We we don't solve all the edge cases. I mean, if we were to do that, we would be super slow and, and super expensive. And that is not what we are. We are fast and, and we are not expensive. So, uh, and the reason, I mean, we, we chose to do this because we took on the hardest problem we know in, in, the, in the land of consumer finance, which is mortgages. I mean, mortgages are usually the least digitized part of, of a bank. And in order to succeed, uh, I mean, we, we really believe that choosing the hardest problem is, is really good because then you get the best technicians because great technicians want to work with great problems. So, so that is one thing that we really have going for us. But, but the other thing is that we can't solve a massively complex problem face on. I mean, we're going to fail like everybody else. So we are not smarter people than anyone else. But, but we are smart in the sense that we are really good at cutting off the, the unnecessary parts. So what we have done is that we have built a system not handling all the edge cases. We've built a system that can handle the full life cycle of a mortgage within a certain parameters. So it is a happy path system. It's brilliant for a, a mortgage challenger or a niche mortgage lender that has a very specific problem that they want to solve and they want to get started. And they can get massive massive gains in in automation compared to to the other systems that we have seen out there so that is what we do and what we do over time is of course that we add more happy parts to our system but but we we don't make any claims to be able to solve every every edge case far from it okay um and so focusing on mortgages and and what makes them so difficult certainly um from the UK perspective, and, and I'm not going to put words in or global audience, obviously's mouth, but the Nordics are viewed as a pretty affluent area. Nordics seem to be the rich Europeans. How does that translate into mortgage habits? Is it, is it a house owning class? The UK, as you're, you might be familiar, is hell bent on the idea that uh, your net worth is usually your house. Um, Whereas in places like Germany, you have gigantic corporations uh, owning thousands of uh, rental properties because it's far more embedded in the culture of the citizen in Germany to, to rent for their entire life and use whatever uh, capital at their disposal for alternative investments. W what's the lay of the land in the Nordics? Yeah, up until the, the 70s and late 80s, we were very much the German model. People rented their, their apartments. Uh, they owned small houses. Uh, but the majority of people lived in, in rental apartments. Uh, that has changed. I mean, the political landscape of Sweden has shifted quite far. We now have uh, very much a, a situation where if, if you're not part of the house-owning class or if, if you're not born into owning a property, chances that you will be able to buy one during your lifetime well, those chances are slim indeed. It's and it's uh, cost of of your first mortgage typically increases faster than you can say if you have a, a decent salary. 
for most people, it's just something that they will never be able to do. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is not a good thing. Uh, I think pretty much everyone in Sweden agrees that this is this is not the situation we want. How to solve it? There are different suggestions, but but the, the key thing is that we need to make it easier for for young people to get their first home, not live at home with their parents, not being able to move to to say Stockholm. Because we need people working here, and and now people can't move here because it's too expensive. I, I, I assume London is very much the same. So, yeah, this is this is a massive problem in in Sweden right now, and it's as far as I know, it's the same situation in in most countries in in the West. And what do you what do you view as a path to solving that problem? Is it is it the government stepping in and implementing? A framework or potentially a, re- a regulation to make it easier. So in, in the United Kingdom, the government stepped in uh, seven to ten years ago, I think it was, and offered the help to buy scheme where they would partner with people on purchasing properties and, and owning equity in, in the house itself. Do you think, um, it, it very interestingly actually, um, when you move the goalposts and, and when you offer incentives, it may have unintended consequences. So, so the first thing that happened in the United Kingdom was yes, it absolutely happened. There was a there was a housing boom because people who could not afford uh, properties in London suddenly could afford properties in London. But what did that mean? Well, that property prices in London went up because there was more competition for them. But uh, and interestingly, what ended up happening was. Like un- unless you're very fortunate, the first house that most people buy is not a uh, in modern society in the United Kingdom. It's not a keeper. It's something you either buy to um, uh, live in for a few years, save up some more money, and get a better house when you sell that one, or it's a fixer upper and you you buy it, you repair it, and it, you improve the, the the quality of the house and you live in it, or or you sell it and you take the profit. Or what was also happening was a large number of second and third home buyers. So not corporations, but individuals who wanted a second property would buy it and rent it out. What happened was with the help to buy scheme, those three sort of entry point um, classes of the market, which it is the bottom of the market, but without the bottom of a market, you can't have a top of a market. It's, it's a cake, it's layered. What ended up happening is the bottom of the market started getting skipped. So if I was trying to sell my property for say 300,000, the only people I could sell that to were people buying their first house. All of a sudden with help to buy, everyone was buying 550,000 pound houses. Now, what ended up happening was a 450,000 pound house would would now become 550,000, but you couldn't justify a 250,000 pound house becoming 550. So you had this strange uh, impact where the new entry point in the market was what most people would, if they were fortunate, would be their second house, Some, in some cases their third house. And so there's um, these trapped layers where bottom of the market people can't sell their houses because everyone can now with government assistance skip above that, but there's nobody to buy those houses off them because everyone's trapped um, because they can't sell their house to a new buyer. And then at the top end of the market, because slightly separate issue net migration in the united kingdom has been huge for years um 
there's steadily more and more and more and more and more people, um, even if birth rates uh, aren't what they were, net migration is, is ensuring that there's increased demand and, and no supply. So that is a, a long way of saying, yes, it works for the people using the buy to, uh, the um, help to buy scheme, but the consequences for other people on the ladder were, were, were somewhat negative. Yeah. And I, I think this goes to the, the heart of the problem. So so my my answer would be that this is not up to the, the regulator or the or the consumers or the banks or anyone else. It's we have to have people in in all these areas working together to, to make things happen. And and the one thing that we know for sure is that the, the thing that you, you implement, say that a bank comes up with this new offer or or that the regulator comes with this new kind of regulation, as you mentioned in, in, in the UK, they will they will never work out exactly the way people expect them to. They they might be slightly different or they might be totally different. That is what we see from from history. I remember very vividly in the beginning of my career we had this new legislation in, in Sweden. We had this financial crisis across Europe and a lot of small companies died. And so the government was looking, why did small companies die? Oh, it was because of the people, the companies that, uh, the business lenders that were lending to to these companies, they didn't get the credit lines from the banks because they were funded by credit lines from banks. And when banks started to see that things were getting worse, that was one of the first things they cut to to make sure they, sh- they themselves survived. So... The government in Sweden had this brilliant idea that, okay, so what if we give, gave these business lenders the same sort of lifeline or, or sort of blood supply that the banks have? What if they could have deposits? Because deposits is the slow thing that makes sure that banks didn't survive this thing, where, where most of the business lenders died. So, so they did this. So back in 2004, there was this new legislation saying that business lenders in Sweden could do deposits with the governmental guarantee for the deposits. I was there. I built the deposit systems for, for one of them. They were the first to launch, and they got massive amounts of money in deposits. The problem was that I couldn't pour all of that into business lending. So what, what happened, long story short in Sweden, is that we've had this consumer lending boom that is really bad for society because all of these business lenders had so much money and they had no way they could spend them on businesses, so they had to pour them out back on the consumers. So... And yes, it worked in the sense that now these business lenders are, are very stable. They will not uh, fall in the next crisis. But we also have this massive problem with too much consumer lending. Obviously not the intention. And this is what happens every time. I remember when I was a kid, I was digging canals in my sandbox, and then I poured water into it. And it never really flowed the way I expected it to. That's, that's how I feel. It can't be easy being the legislator. But, but I think that the problem here is that when we have a hard problem in engineering, we try to be agile. We, we try something, and it fails. And I mean, the, the expression fail fast is well known, and, and that is what we do. We, we see how it failed, and we adapt, and we do something else. And that fails too, but in a slightly less awful way. And then we, and then we do it all over again as, as fast as we can until we have something that works well enough. And I think that that is something that the legislature would be good. They would love if they could use something like that as well. Makes sense. So, so if you think it, it's not something that um, needs to be regulated into existence and it needs to be co-opted, 
maybe that can lead us to um, the cliche part of the the interview, which is somewhat forced upon us by um, wanting to appear relevant, I guess. Uh, no tech interview would um, be complete without a, a, a touch point on AI at the moment. Do you, do you think AI can, can play a, a, any role in, um, in bringing about uh, the greater equity in, in say, housing or, or other aspects of, of society? One thing I've heard from a number of people that are participants in the space is the long tail, as, as you call it, it's really a many, many, many data points that get filtered out in, in any sort of transaction between um, two parties, never mind three or four or five. But if, if there was a, a systematic way to automate all of the information that the bank has in their head and capture it all and squeeze down the uncertainty of a default on that loan, resulting in reduced uh, interest rates for reliable uh, consumers. Do you think that would be a way of doing it? Or do you think that might actually have precisely the opposite impact? If they could automate all of that data, they might actually find more information than they ever could about the person asking for the loan and find even more ways to be uncomfortable with the idea of actually underwriting it. That for a bank, more information is always better. And, and, and there are always, it's, it's about managing risk. If you have more reliable data, you can find business models where you can, you can lend out money to that person, uh, and still be profitable. And if you do that with, with a bad insight into that person's economy, it's just going to be bad business in the, in the marathon that we talked about. So, so I don't see, I don't see any drawbacks in it. And I'm, I'm myself, I'm, like I said, I was playing with AI when I was back in, 94 already so i i am i'm one of the the super fans I, I was there when we started to implement internet in the banking industry and i have the same feeling right now with ai i think that it will change the industry as much as as the internet has done in in all the ways that people say now and in other ways that we can't even think of right now i mean look back 20 years and see what people said about the internet most of the great things that have happened no one can really foresee so how how exactly? I think that it's very presumptuous to say how, but I think that it will change the industry at its very core. I think that if you're a bank and you're not doing AI in 10 years' time, you will be as relevant as a bank that is not doing internet. It's, it's, not, it's not possible. However, I don't think that AI or internet magically solves the problems on the housing market. That is not how it works. I mean, as a bank, a bank can only do, I mean, take money from people who have too much and, and give it to people who have too little and, and, and make money out of that. That's, that's what a bank does. And, and for the housing market to work, we need, we need houses to put people in. So, so I don't think that we should expect any magic cures for these problems through technology, AI, internet, or anything else. It sure makes life better. I, I like it. Um, listen, Eric, you've been a fantastic guest. It's It's been really great to uh, hear about your insights. It was really, really fun to speak to you. Um, I already have some sound bites, um, which, which, I, which I never c considered that we could use uh, for some of the promotion of this uh, super, super interesting deep dive. Uh, thank you for being a guest on the interview, and we hope to have you on again in the future. I would love to. 
it was a great talk and I, I love learning about the, the UK market. I realized that we should look at you more and learn from what you have done because that, that idea with land buy thing was, was really interesting. Sure. Well, I'm happy to talk to you much more about my own personal experiences with it there, but that's probably for, for a, a non-recorded line. Um, Eric, thank you so much for having you. Yeah, thank you very much.